Hi and welcome back to the DCVC podcast. This is your host Akash Bhatt and each week I bring you leading investors and operators investing and building companies all across the globe. I'm extremely excited about this week's episode because we have a serial entrepreneur who's taken one of his companies public and is in the course of taking another one. Joining me on the show today is Birat Seth. He's the co-founder and CEO of Gupshop the world's leading platform for cloud messaging and conversational experiences. Gupshub has raised more than $480 million from marquee investors such as Helion Venture Partners, Tiger Global, CRV, White Oak, among many others. He was previously the co-founder of Elance, which is now known as Upwork, the world's largest online services marketplace which went public in 2018. Prior to founding Elance, he worked in the financial services industry modeling, structuring, and trading fixed income securities and derivatives at Merrill Lynch, and before that at Citicorp Securities. He graduated from MIT with a master's degree in computer science engineering and completed his BTEC from IIT Bombay. Well, this is one of those episodes where we really get into the mind of a serial entrepreneur and try and understand what kind of keeps them ticking and making them come back for more. And there's a lot of insights that first-time entrepreneurs can take away from Birad's journey being a very successful founder both in India and here in the Silicon Valley. We talk about the pressures of entrepreneurship, the distinctive traits of exceptional founders, the role founders play in business pivots, and most importantly, some of the learnings that he's had building and scaling companies across the globe. Well, I'm really excited to share this episode with each and every one of you. So without further ado, let's head in and listen to Birad. Welcome to the DCVC podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to host you here on the show today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for the last 10 days or so. And I'm really excited to talk everything company building with, with you. But before we head into any of that, how about things on your end? Now, firstly, thanks, Akash. Thanks for having me here. Excited to be here. Um, things are busy, I should say. Uh, lots of work. You know, We're growing fast, scaling um, globally. Actually, I have a lot of travel coming up and um, so on but can't complain all good you know uh, all i say is better than the alternative right absolutely i mean we've seen some dark times in the not so recent past and uh, busy is always great and typically i often start the conversation by asking founders to talk about their journey and kind of like what led them down the path of entrepreneurship and i want to do the same to you as well because one of the things that I really enjoy is understanding origin stories and what kind of gave conviction to people in the early days to actually start their companies. And oftentimes, all of that is kind of linked to things that have happened to them in their childhood, things that they've been exposed to, the companies that they work, certain people who kind of like influence them. I'm going to pose a similar question to you as well. What are those things that have happened in your personal life or in your professional life that kind of led you down the path of entrepreneurship and gave you conviction to to get started? Uh, you know, great, great question. This goes way back. And, um, you know, so, I, I mean, I grew up, firstly, just some background. I grew up in Mumbai, you know, sort of average middle-class Gujarati family. Um, you know, I we didn't have too much, but it's but I didn't feel like it. I mean, I felt like I had everything I needed. Uh, you know, I had 
Um, I mean, I had uh, I was blessed with a sort of good academic uh, background, so I you know sort of did well academically, which helped me you know in IIT and then grad school at MIT as well, right? So all of that was good. But it was around that time, I think once I, you know, so first step was sort of, um, you know, coming to the US because now this is in the early 90s, India was going through its own challenges, balance of payment crisis, if you remember, you know, uh, Manmohan Singh days and things like that. So in terms of economic and tech opportunity, you know, things that I cared about, I mean, it was just, there was no choice really. It has changed so much now, but at that time there wasn't a choice. And then once I was here, you know, I was in grad school in a PhD program, but very quickly realized, you know, I didn't want to be an academic. I wanted to just have, you know, a real world business impact. I mean, it really um, just, you know, you, I, I guess maybe the, you know, the most interesting thing was, you know, in, in India, they kind of sort of say, look, here's the path laid out for you. These are the courses you have to do. These are the things you have to take. And you, you come here for grad school. And they say, look, there's nothing that you're supposed to do. What do you want to do? You know, it kind of forces you for the first time to actually think about what you care about. And I think it's really just at that point, you know, I think it kind of through some trial and error, through some iteration, you know, figuring out. Uh, and I think to me, uh, it just, you know, to me, uh, sort of business, uh, business is a very powerful vehicle to have social impact. I think entrepreneurship is the ultimate prosperity generating machine. Uh, for society, that's where a lot of value and wealth, uh, and you know, uh, comes. It, it creates new products, innovation, and and things like that, right? So I think it just sort of, I mean, those are my views that have evolved now. But I think it was just a process of just wanting to, you know, itching to do something and pushing the limits and so on. Yeah. There are a couple of things that stand out to me in that section, and you and I have something in common. I too got accepted to do a PhD program, but didn't end up pursuing it for pretty much similar reasons. Right. And my professor, my advisor said, you're one of those people who will end up taking up the PhD, will be in his second year, look back at his decision, regret what he did, drop out, and then get back into the corporate side of things. So I'm going to save you some time and maybe university some money investing in you and saying, please don't do this. So uh, I didn't end up going down the PhD route, but end up, you know, going down private equity and then VC. And I don't mm. regret that decision up until now, at least. But uh, one of the things I noticed that you said that said there was, um, you know, you had that urge to get into the world of business. Probably some of that was influenced by, not to stereotype, but the Gujarati background. You know, the fact that you know most families do come from, um, you know, the, the the working class. I'm really curious to understand. When you did make that decision of getting down the path of going into business, what gave you the conviction? Because you came from a very traditional, you know, academic background, IIT, MIT, you know, the traditional path for you would have been to like, go get a job, work with a corporate environment, and then perhaps think about it a few years down the line. But there's that sense of, Kuch karna hai, really need to do it. That probably would have been that fire burning in your belly. But that conviction to actually take that step was having that and sitting on it for years is something that a lot of people end up just wasting a lot of years on. What kind of advice that you probably would give looking back at your own journey that kind of allowed you to take that leap of faith on yourself more than anything else and hoping that things will work out? So uh, firstly, though I'm a Gujarati, I didn't grow up in a business family. It was uh, sort of, you know, my dad sort of worked at a, at Tata Steel, actually a Tata company. And my mom was an insurance agent. And, you know, that's sort of, so so not 
much in terms of a business background within the family, though, of course, you know, the broader community uh, is, is very business oriented. I think, um, you know, you know, I was at MIT and just graduated from there um, sort of in the early mid 90s. Right. Uh, so the first thing I felt was, yeah, while I studied a lot of computer science, I was very, very strong technically. I wanted to get some business exposure. So I took sort of my first job was uh, a stint on Wall Street about five years, you know, multiple. Um, I was at Citibank and Morgan and Merrill Lynch. Uh, I was trading mortgage backed securities, uh, you know, mortgage. I was like a bond trader as, as well, which was quite an experience. Um, and then, you know, meanwhile, the internet happened, right? I think, and it's just one of those things. I mean, I'm a, you know, I love, I, I love to read about history and not not just political history, but even tech history and industrial history and how some of these new products and new ideas come about and these revolutions happen and so on. And it was just one of those seminal moments where, you know, you're like, okay, I think I read somewhere where, you know, when you're on your deathbed talking to your grandkids, you know, and they ask you, what were you doing when the internet happened? I mean, what kind of answer, you know, would you be giving? And and when you have a moment like these, you know, it just sort of, uh, what else would you be doing, right? I mean, partly you have a little bit of confidence saying, look, you're a good academic background. So what's the worst that can happen if you, you know, if the startup fails, you can always get back, you know, find some other job. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, perversely having a great academic background makes you risk averse, right? Because you're like, you're very easily tempted with good salaries and good jobs and so on. But I think for me, I was just, uh, and also I think my, you know, a little bit of work experience, I just felt like, uh, you know, corporate world, um, you know, um, wasn't for me. I mean, it can be really sometimes slow and bureaucratic and a lot of very political, uh, very intense. And, you know, and Wall Street is a little different, but it certainly is uh, very cutthroat uh, yeah. and so on. So meanwhile, um, yeah, I think I, I love, you know, maybe I didn't mention earlier, but I love sort of uh, puzzles, right? I mean, I've been in that, you know, that's maybe the best way to put it because that helped me through my academic career as well, but in general, Solving problems, innovating, tinkering uh, is is just something I just naturally gravitated to it. And maybe the only thing I'll add on the, you know, uh, you know, it's hard to say that you have conviction. Uh, I mean, I think it's a combination of maybe, you know, confidence as well as maybe I, I, I don't know, ignorance or or stupidity, perhaps, right? Because if you know too much about what you're getting into, then then you know you, you might never get started. Yeah. So it helps to be somewhat ignorant of what the entrepreneurial journey is, and you just kind of do it and you figure it out, right? And and the issue is, it's not just the initial jump is just the part of it. You're constantly navigating and dealing with challenges and so on. And I think we'll talk more about it. But I think uh, you know you kind of have to keep. Uh, developing new conviction like every every week every month in this part of the entrepreneurial journey yeah and you've done that a couple of times and that's the other thing that's really a, you know beautiful about this journey is that you constantly keep learning about reinventing yourself over and over again as we go through black swan events as we go through changes with times new technologies and inventions coming into being all of that kind of like gives you an opportunity to like reinvent yourself in in whatever shape and form that it may take and, um, you know, I want to ask you that question and 
how have you seen yourself evolve over the years? Because you've seen quite a few, I would say, major tectonic shifts that have come about in the tech industry. We've obviously seen the advent of the smartphone changing how people do business. And we are at an age today where there's just everything every day is seems like there's something new that's coming in. And today with generative AI and everything that's kind of like buzzwords, every other month or so, we keep hearing these new trends that are popping up. So there's emerging technologies, but you've got started about 20, 25 years ago, especially in the world of tech when the internet was just, you know, in its nascency. But when you got started almost 18, 20 years ago in the world of technology as an entrepreneur, you probably started with the optimism of really having that, you know, what is going to be my legacy and what, how am I going, how are my grandchildren going to remember me and how is the world going to remember me? You alluded to in, you know, previous answer. And how has that evolved with your perception of how you look at yourself and your journey overall now reflecting back on the 15 to 18 years that you've spent building multiple companies as an entrepreneur? How does that, you know, how do you reflect back on that journey today? Uh, I mean, it just, uh, it, it wasn't so much about, legacy building as it was you know i mean it, it, it it's not for others but it just you know what it what did i do with with the time and the opportunity and the chances that i was given and you know did i make the most of it and did i create something and did i you know and leave the world better than i found it kind of thing right so you really i guess i would describe it more as impact rather than legacy in terms of you know you just want to want to do things and as i um I don't know, look back at my journey and look forward because the journey is nowhere near done. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's 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 uh, it's been a lot longer and a lot harder and a lot more ups and downs, much more of a roller coaster than I bargained for, uh, which is why I said, you know, it's, it's better to be ignorant about it, right? Because with hindsight, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you'd have done it, but uh, but but once you're in, you know, you just sort of go with grit and you know perseverance and um, and creativity, and you know you sort of navigate these things. Yeah, uh, I think I've been, you know, you 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 hear about startup mortality and so on. I've been uh, I've been fortunate. I say it, it's a combination of you know effort and grit and so on, along with an element of luck you know, or as they call it, return on luck, right? Meaning luck happens to everybody, but what would you do with it that matters, right? So we did dodge a few bullets. For example, I, you know, we closed a funding round just before the 2001 crisis. And also, by the way, just before the 2008 crisis, right? Now, things like that are external factors that have could kill any early stage startup, right? Because it yeah. sort of led to a funding winter. Um, but uh, so there was a little bit of luck, but then of course you kind of have to, you know, do something with it. And I think we've have come a long way. I mean, it's been a, a a great journey. Like I said, no complaints, right? We've had um, I've had basically two startups that I've created. One's a public company, the other one hopefully at some point soon. Yeah, uh, we'll there too. And um, you know, um, I would like to i mean at this stage now of course you know uh there's a lot to be done with gupshop and scaling it up and so on so i think there's there's a lot of it there but in addition to that i mean i like to you know also work with other entrepreneurs mentor give back um you know also thinking about you know the sort of bigger and broader things that could benefit uh, the the broader tech ecosystem in a way that that ecosystem benefited me right so sort of paying it forward and and so on. So I think yeah. I mean, you do you continue to do that um, a, a lot of it. Yeah. 
There are a few answers in that segment that I want to go deeper into and get your learnings from those. Some of those include these wonderful journeys that you've been on either side of the funding winters and also the IPO journey and how is that kind of like influenced you. We'll get into that in a couple of minutes time. But one thing that, you know, you alluded to and something that stuck a card with me was, have I been able to like reflect back on that journey myself? I'm a great combination of somebody who is an optimist and a cynic at the same time. I constantly keep going back and questioning the things that I've done and seeing what I've learned from it, but also give myself a very hard time for some of the decisions I make. But I still don't know if those decisions are the right decisions and I'll probably only look back on it a few years from now and see if they actually make sense. So I give myself a little bit of liberty. So I do get a sense that you are or you reflect back on some of your journeys in a similar way. Um, but having said that, you know, as an entrepreneur, two companies, one public, one is, you know, in the process of, you know, going down that route again, when you're when you have multiple stakeholders who are constantly looking up on you in terms of you know hey is this going to like go down and give us some returns and your existing stakeholders especially with the public company is probably going to you know look at you completely differently you have a different set of investors at this point how often do you put yourself through that introspective journey both as a leader and as somebody who has stakeholders to report to and does that happen at a very macro level or is it more internal and very personal for you as an entrepreneur you know, I think, uh, so at least the way I think about the past, I try to learn from it, but I try not to have any regrets in the sense that, you know, it's always easier in hindsight, but, you know, a priori, you know, what what the context was and the, and the situation was and the circumstances were. I mean, it's sort of hard to sort of put yourself in those shoes and in that context all over again, right? So, um, also, sort of one belief or mantra, if you will, that I have is right. Um, there's this thing they call it the serenity prayer, which says, you know, give me the the courage to change the things I can, uh, the patience to accept the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. Right. So there are many things that happen to us that we don't like that you can't change. Right. So uh, do you worry about it, complain about it, have regrets about it, or do you just like? you know, flow like water around the rocks, right? As an entrepreneur, you kind of, you can't hit your head against a wall. You just have to sort of work around, sidestep the problem and kind of uh, move on, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, I like to, you know, so it's not, uh, it's not in terms of sort of looking at regrets or things like that. It's just sort of saying, okay, here's where we are, you know, clean slate. Every day, every moment is a, is a new opportunity to figure out what you're doing. And then of course you learn, you know, you learn from your lessons from the past, you leverage, you know, the cumulative experiences that you built up yeah. uh, to making the next decision, right? So I think sort of being present and focusing on the, on the, either the next moment or the next year or the next five years, you know, is where, I mean, that's where I actually try to spend enough quiet time or think time, um, you know, and just try to uh, think about what do we do here more than, you know, oh, we shouldn't have done that in the past. It's like, okay, I mean, you know, <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't have, but now that it's done, what's the point? Okay, how do we correct for it? How do we fix it? And you know, and and some of these things are correctable, and it doesn't matter. So why bother? And some of them are not. But then you just sort of, you know, you 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 deal with it and kind of move forward. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a fascinating way of actually building a framework around your decision making and how you reflect back on some of the things that have happened to you. And you talked about lessons. <laughs> so let's get into that. Let's talk about. The two companies that you've founded, Gupshop and Upwork, obviously you've had a fantastic journey with both companies and there's a lot of learnings. But let me ask you a very simple question, which I think a curious part of me has been itching to ask you and ask most serial entrepreneurs. 
why two companies and how do you manage work with both because one itself is very hard and you've got two and two really good successful ones so how does that how does how do you manage your time yeah well i think to be clear uh, they were sequential not in parallel right so it's it's you know i think i i founded elance and i was in an operating role for about Eight years or so, uh, and then I and then I was I continued to stay on the board for a longer period, but when I left Elance, is when I you know founded Gupshop, and then while I've been doing this, I mean it's really just been focused on this, so not as crazy as it might sound. Um, and now, of course, you know Elance had a many longer year journey, and then it rebranded to Upwork, and then went public, and I wasn't involved in that phase of the company in an operating role, right? Though I'm still the number one fan and a shareholder still, right? So I think, um, yeah, but I think in terms of time, maybe, you know, the only learning I might say is when I was a lot younger, I used to think that, you know, every email had to be responded right away. Every minute of your day is is critical. And, and I think maybe I've realized that, you know, some of that, it's not the little stuff that kills you, right? It's the big stuff that you miss or that you didn't see coming uh, that kind of blindsides you. Right, so as so I try to, um, like I was saying earlier, right, keep some keep some think time or quiet time, and just sort of saying, okay, what's going on? Where is it happening? And you know, earlier we talked about these tech uh, cycles and you know, uh, disruptive paradigm shifts and things like that. But they're going to keep happening, right? There's never a dull moment in our industry. So being able to think about it, anticipate it, see it, you know, and, and so on is, is very, very critical. It's, it's like a survival skill in our kind of business. So I try to, you know, I try to do that as much as well. And it helps a little bit because now, you know, Gupshap has enough scale. We have enough execs and leaders and, you know, a lot of the work happens, uh, yeah. you know, they, they drive a lot of the work and therefore I should be doing my job, which is really, you know, looking sort of a step ahead uh, you know, and being ahead of the curve. Yeah. That's a very interesting point that you bring up there because one of my favorite quotes of all time written by Octopus back a couple of years ago is that the role of the CEO or the role of a founder and person in, in a leadership role in the early days of a founding journey is typically of being that of a doer, you know, rolling up the sleeves and getting shit done, so to speak. And then towards the later years of the company journey, it's about becoming an efficient and more successful enabler, making sure that you have the right set of people around you who report to you, who are able to take ownership of certain aspects of the business that you don't really need to worry about. In your experience, and you've had that in both situations, how have you seen yourself evolve as an, from a doer to an enabler? And at the core, if I were to ask you, what are you? What are you? Are you more of a doer? Are you still a better enabler today? How would you answer that question? So uh, firstly, uh, so totally agree with that, right? Doer to enabler, but it's more than that. I think you also need to be a thinker and a seer in mm -hmm. the sense that, you know, yes, you're enabling people, but then you need to guide them in a certain direction and say, okay, here's where the world is going to be three years from now. And mm -hmm. therefore, you know, you need you need to sometimes break things or move people in a different direction, right? Or not just enable, but temporarily disable so that you can move them in a different direction and so on, right? So it's a sort of a combination of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, to your 
question of where do I see myself? I mean, I think, uh, you know, I find uh, the, the way I approach sort of these things is just sort of work backwards from from the, the problem I'm trying to solve, right? What are we trying to do? And therefore, given that, um, you know, what stage is the company at? What is it trying to accomplish? And, and given that, what do I need to do in at this stage? And, and so on. So certainly as the company went from, you know, like a couple of years ago, we were 200 people. Now we're like 1400 people. Yeah. Uh, five acquisitions and so on right so certainly that doer to enabler transition did happen where i previously i felt like i was actively involved in everything and now you know i have to I, it's hard to do anything directly you have to do it through teams and through people uh, and and so on right um, but in addition to that like i said right uh, anticipating these trends i mean with uh, let's say generative ai right that's a huge disruptive phenomenon how is that going to impact uh, what we are doing yeah uh, you know, uh, the messaging industry itself is expanding uh, very rapidly in many interesting ways. So, you know, where's where's that going? What's likely to happen and so on? We are expanding geographically, right? What do we need in different regions? And then of course, a lot of enabling as well, right? I think making the organization work um, like a lean machine uh, efficiently and so on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's sort of, it goes in phases, right? I think uh, there are, um, uh, there was a time where, you know, like we had just done five acquisitions. So we, we really had to spend almost a quarter just enabling, which is aligning teams, organizing, you know, assigning roles and responsibilities, prioritizing, setting goals, targets, you know, driving a lot of clarity and unifying uh, a lot of these things, right? So that was a big focus. Um, but, you know, let's say with generative AI happening and so on, right? We're spending a lot of time thinking about what do we do? there so that's a tech evolution that we have to na navigate um, that might be a lot more outbound stuff right talking to board members talking to other founders and you know um, other visionaries trying to say okay where where is this going what's happening tinkering with with it myself and things like that right so yeah I think it's a it's a combination and I you know I've tried to adapt uh because the business needs it, right? It's not about I am or what I like to do. I think it's sort of, you know, there's, there's a goal that has to be accomplished and, you know, what's needed. So it's sort of very mission-oriented thinking to saying, okay, I'll I'll do whatever is needed. So for example, I, I live in the Bay Area, but I work India hours. I'm usually up till 3 or 4 a.m. every night, uh, you know, because my teams are are there i travel like crazy because again you know we are a global business um and if i really sat to think about what i like to do or what i should be doing uh you know it'd be very different answers versus what do i need to do and you know we'll, we'll yeah. do it because i want to you know you want to unblock and unclog and you want to keep the organization moving as efficiently and as aggressively as it can yeah I once had a founder on the podcast who took his company public tell me that the role of the CEO is very similar to that as of that of a role of a cricketer. And he was a cricket fan, so he brought up that example. Um, he talks about when you're in the early days, you know, there are a few people around you who are giving you advice. Not a lot of stakeholders don't really care about it. But as you keep going up the levels, the Ranji levels, and you end up playing for the national team and then the, and you're representing country at the global stage, the number of stakeholders and people who have an opinion about everything that you're doing constantly increases. And that is the real pressure. Can you really perform at that level when you have a lot of eyeballs at you? And that goes extra, 
especially when you take the company public, you have a lot more investors who are looking at you and you have, if you have different stakeholders that you're accountable to. And um, I thought that was a very interesting analogy that this person drew. And it really goes to show that the more successful you are, the more that the pressure is to continue delivering on that success. And people expect a lot more from you. Have you sensed that pressure in a good way, bad way, whatever way that it's come along in whatever shape and form that you may have been parceled and packed to you? Has that kind of motivated you? Has it kind of like given you, you know, some sleepless nights and days in some cases? And if there are those dark, tough moments, what would those be? Honestly, uh, honestly, I try not to think about it because I think it can only disrupt with your ability to stay in the moment and execute well and things like that. Mm. The sense that, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you've got to be your own true authentic self and be confident and sure that you're doing the right thing in the moment and yeah. you know, have that confidence, then it doesn't matter whether somebody is watching or not watching, right? I mean, you would just mm. do uh, what's what's required or what, what you think is, is the right thing. I think trying to get into what will somebody else think about it, how will somebody else perceive it and so on can only you know complicate what is already a very hard decision making process right yeah. Uh, so yeah i think on the one hand you know certainly there's more scrutiny as you you know as your company gets bigger or you know as you have more success but at the same time you also have uh, more experience uh, you also have more resources you have more ability to help more advise uh, you know and things like that right so um, yeah, I think it is, you know, it can be a difficult and lonely uh, process. And, you know, it's it's a, it's a bit of a mind game, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, what I mean by that is just managing your own psychology itself can be a challenging process. Uh, but, you know, I think investors often have to deal with it, right? Fear and greed uh, kind of thing. I, I don't know, maybe, um, you know, poker players, you know, deal with it as well. You have these emotional things and so on. And I've just found that trying to, you know, be a little Zen-like, right? In the sense that you sort of cut out the distractions and cut out the, the everything that's not related to or essential to the, the point at hand, right? Being present in the moment and, and making, uh, making decisions based on the available information and so on, right? Now, of course, you can use creativity. You can always change the rules of the game. You can do, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have a lot of means at your disposal. But I try not to, you know, think about uh, the the scale yeah. and who's watching and what will what will the media say, right? I mean, it sort of it goes back to the earlier point. I'm saying, look, if if I can't control it, I can't control it. And if there are bad news, I mean, I'll I'll share it. You know, does that make me a lesser person? No, I mean, and vice versa, when we become, a, I don't know, unicorn and people write about it, does that make us any better? I I don't know about that either. I mean, you're just, you know, you're just doing what you were always doing, yeah. staying focused uh, on, you know, sort of making one right decision after another. And, you know, and that's it. I have a follow-up question, which may be related to some of the answers that you mentioned, but what I, in the little time that we've been chatting, one of the things that really comes across to me is that you're, mentally very strong and you kind of know what you want especially from a business context that in and of itself has been something that has been a virtue of the the life that you have led you know the experiences that you have had you've obviously built the companies that you have and that's kind of given you all those that to get to the point that you are today 
we have a lot of our listeners who are first time entrepreneurs who are young in their 20s world who are trying to build companies for the first time it's very difficult for some of them to actually build this framework from day one there's a lot of self doubt the people around them judging them talking to them constantly giving them advice constantly giving them um negative pieces of feedback as well and they've got to take all that in their stride and continue building businesses i'm sure you've had those you know moments in your time as an entrepreneur but if you were sharing a framework for a first time entrepreneur out there who's building a company for the first time going through all of this what would you advise somebody like this to make sure that you know they don't really listen to everything and everybody but make sure that they kind of have listen to their gut take pieces of advice from certain people but keep the eye on the ball and that's so important before, without getting derailed so i'll uh, you know i'll make a an important difference between sort of not getting anxious versus sort of knowing everything right um, i think uh, even though it may appear i mean i'm far from always knowing what to do all the time right i mean this we we inherently operate in a world of uncertainty where you just don't know you don't have the facts you don't know how others might react you know you don't know what competitors might do what partners board members anything right you you just don't know so i don't think knowing everything is the is the goal or the objective because that standard is just unachievable i think uh, and i'll come back to that in a second right but what i was trying to say was okay so this is already a hard problem right you don't know you don't have full visibility you don't have all the data and the information that you'd like and you've got to make a judgment call and a gut feel and things like that right that's already a hard problem to begin with what i try to do is not make it any harder by bringing either my emotions into it oh my god what's going to happen if i do this versus that or you know sort of external perceptions or what are they going to think if i did this what is that person going to think if i did that and so on right i think uh, all i'm trying to say is you know you 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 maybe it's a little bit like the bhagavad gita right it's sort of like you know you you focus on your karma right you do what you're supposed to do and uh, don't worry about the outcome you don't worry about things you don't control right and but but that's still hard right so so to the so if you can if you can just avoid all the distractions that can interfere and that can only hurt the the thought process then you know you focus on the problem at hand which is okay you don't know but there's many ways to manage it right do you want to mm-hmm. what happens if you if uh, if that thing works out as expected versus doesn't right what's the upside versus the downside what is the is it reversible versus irreversible right if uh, if there's low downside and high upside we'll just do it if it is reversible well then why think too much about it just go ahead and you know you can course correct later um on the other hand if it's you know complex uh maybe you want to think about it a little more um if you don't have all the insights and data well surround yourself with with advisors with people who've been through this uh, sort of thing right um and so on or you know i think those are those are some tips and tricks uh maybe when i was a rookie entrepreneur i would for example hire just based on resume and skills and competencies but then you realize that okay you still have to work with the person right day to day and you have to be there to be a a team player right you can't just um, you know if you they may have the skills but aren't you know amenable to working well um, then you want to think a little bit longer term right not just solve a short term problem by hiring somebody quickly um, you know i think yeah there's this uh, there's a lot of 
um, you got to think about portfolio of uh, opportunities. You're taking different bets, right? So you don't know if which one will work or if any of them will work, but but at least if you can hedge a little bit, right? Then then even if one doesn't work, well, you have the other option or things like that. So those are the those are the frameworks and those are the things you want to do without getting distracted by you know um, uh, by emotions or perceptions or things like that. I think for a lot of founders, it's the voices inside their own head that kind of weighs them down as opposed to the voices outside. Mm-hmm. And um, you kind of like given a pretty good framework that has worked well for you. And I hope a lot of the founders, including myself, can take this away from this conversation, at least is understanding to compartmentalize better. And I think that's one of the things that I would I would at least take away from from that response is, is trying to make sure that you, you know where to you know what to take and more importantly just compartmentalizing the right things at the right time kind of sets you down the right path uh if i'm if i could summarize that would that be an accurate yeah yeah and i think you know i think uh what happens is growing up uh, certainly through the indian education system right there's just so much of this hyper competition and one-upmanship and you're always yeah. thinking about, okay, how do I compare versus that person? Okay, am I ahead or am I behind? And they took this choice and I they took that job and I did the startup and now I'm struggling and am I falling behind and this and that. And I think all of those are, you know, very uh, unhelpful thought processes. So I think uh, in, in some ways, I mean, I'll tell you this, right? I think, uh, I mean, as you know, I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was blessed with an exceptional academic record. Uh, honestly, that was a problem. Right. It was a problem because growing up in the Indian education system, you're like, okay, you know, if you're if you're smart, then you you can cruise through all the tests and the exams and life is easy. And then you think that that's how the world works. But when you come into the real world, well, your customer doesn't give a damn about what degrees you have or what grades you have. Yeah. They just care about does the product work or not. Right. And um, and suddenly, you know, you kind of have to unlearn some old habits or perhaps a sense of entitlement that that could set in saying, oh, you know, it's always going to work out. And it's like, no, you know, you need to develop a ton of intellectual humility, right? It's like, okay, I, you know, I put in my blood, sweat and tears, I build this product, you don't like it? Well, why not? Or tell me and I want to fix it. Okay, fine. How about we fix that? How about we fix that? Okay, how about now? Right? And that takes a level of, uh, intellectual humility and and so on so i think um, you know but you I, I like to describe it as maybe a humble and uh, humble and hungry approach to to doing things right you got to be listening right being humble to your you know to your colleagues to your customers of course um, you know investors board members so you kind of listen yeah absorb and then figure out the right things to do but then you're always driven hungry wanting to do better wanting to uh, succeed and so on, right? So you kind of need to combine all of that into into driving, moving forward. Yeah. It's a very underrated skill, which is listening. And I was talking to Tushar Vashisht of Healthify Me a few weeks ago on the podcast. And I asked him a simple question, which was, if you were to redo your entire career from scratch, what is one thing that you'd perhaps want to maybe take a different approach towards? And he said, I wish I'd spent more time in the early days listening, listening to people, listening to my customers, listening to the feedback that they gave me, because I think I would have iterated better on what I was building. I would have listened to people, what they were telling about me, my leadership styles, and that would have really impacted my business in a different way altogether. And 
today, if I were to go back in time, that is what I would do is listen more intently. And I hear you saying that as well. I think that's a gospel for a lot of founders who need to do that, especially at the early days of company building, is continue to keep listening to the customers, especially if you're a, if you're if you're taking a product first approach. I think that's a very important lesson for a lot of them to do. And uh, that's a difficult skill to actually develop because as a founder, when you and I, I've, I'm working with a few portfolio companies of mine, you are so married and so close to your product that you think that it in its form, it's purest. And it is the customer that doesn't really get what you're trying to do. But more often than not, the customer doesn't really care about all the features and everything that you put. They only care about what it can do for them. Right. Like what value can this product deliver to me and my business? That's more important. That's kind of where there's a fine line between product and listening to companies and your customers and building products that they really want. And that's really where founders can be successful or not. What do you think about that? You know, I would I would phrase it a little differently. I think either extreme is bad, right? If you're too much of a good listener, uh, mm. that's not going to work out very well. And if you don't listen at all, that's not going to work out well either. There's a little bit of a, a Goldilocks zone, right? Meaning yeah. just enough, right? Not too much, not too little, just enough. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, Steve Jobs, I think famously said, right? If you ask that's people what kind of phone yeah. they wanted, they would have said a better punch phone, right? They would never, never come up with an iPhone. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of stuff, you can't listen to your customer, right? So you kind of, um, or you know, way back when the car came about, if you asked what they wanted, they'd have said a faster That's horse car, you know, uh, or something like that. So I think version one of a product, by definition, you kind of, uh, I mean, that's often driven by technology and paradigm shifts and by the founder intuition, right? Mm -hmm. It cannot be driven by listening to the customer, right? So revolutions happen by not listening. Uh, evolution, of course, happens by by listening, right? So it's a combination of that. It's, there's a time and a place and a context for, um, you know, so internally, at least when when I think about this, I just say, look, if it's a V1 product, you know, I don't, I don't even want to ask anybody. I don't, you know, um, because anything they say will only lead me down the wrong direction. I mean, of course I, you know, and you have some intuition about the problem, right? You're not working uh, from, from scratch. So you have some intuition, you use that create a product, but, but then don't assume it's a finished product, right? You create a prototype, create a mock, um, you know, put it in front of the user and say, okay, now, you know, what do you think of this? Would you like it? And so on. And then listen very carefully because anything they tell you will help you refine the product further and sort of evolve it from there. Yeah. This actually ended up being a good segue for like two important questions that I had in mind before we started the episode. And one of that was with respect to pivots and I think Pivot is a very interesting concept and I love Pivots and some of the best companies and most successful companies in the world like from the right of the likes of YouTube to Twitch to all the ones that we know, Twitter, all of them have been some sort of a pivot um, in terms of what they are today. And you've kind of like endured a couple of those journeys yourselves. So I just want to understand a little bit more in terms of the psyche of the entrepreneur when a situation such as changing the direction of a business comes about? And what does it really take to bring all stakeholders on board to buy and buy into that vision that we are going a completely different, different route or slightly turning away from our target audience and what we were doing? How does that, as a leader, kind of bring in the leadership qualities in you to convince more people to like buy into that vision, including your employees, 
not just the external stakeholders who are kind of invested and are you know rooting for your success i think um, i mean it's hard right it's it's particularly hard because obviously something you were trying didn't work or failed and now you're back to the drawing board right and you need to uh, undo what you were doing before and then do something new and firstly you are you know, you may or may not be sure, right? Uh, and chances are you're not sure because if you were, then you would have done that earlier, right? So uh, you have to think about what the new course of action is and you're probably second guessing yourself and then you have to convince everybody else around you also to come along and so on, right? So it's, it's sort of particularly hard. Um, on the other hand, you know, in many ways, a crisis can also often be seen as an opportunity. Right. And it's just really a matter of perspective. I mean, yes, bad things happened. Right. And maybe, you, you know, you can cry over it a little bit. But but then once you step away from it and say, OK, you know, um, in a way, if it fails, that just allows you to stop wasting more time or energy or resources on a problem that that cannot be solved and then looking for something different, something new. Right, so it can be quite liberating uh, in in some ways. Right, it sort of frees up your thought process, your degrees of freedom. Right, your constraints. I mean, you're no longer trying to maintain the old stuff. You kind of you you just sort of have to you know. I mean, it's it's like a like a reset in mm. a way. So I think yeah. I mean, you really you know. I find all of these situations um, more than the situation itself. It's like how you perceive it. Right, that if you you know, and what I've, uh, what works for me, at least mentally, uh, is that I see any change, any disruption, including of our own business as, as an opportunity rather, I mean, it's both an opportunity and a threat, right? And if you look at it in a balanced way, then you say, okay, how do I avoid the threats and how do I seize the opportunities? Because, you know, the world's changed and you've got to adjust and adapt and there's no going back, you know, to, to what it used to be. So, but, but yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's easier said than done. I think that the, this is where the personal factors come in a lot, right? Because, because your team is also wondering, you know, there's, there's a lot of self-doubt. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a lot of questions and, and the, the biggest question as well, if the last idea failed, why, why do we think the next one will succeed? Right. right? Uh, which is, and I think in these situations, maybe the only suggestion or advice I can give is you got to, you just have to be your authentic self and not try to spin it or sugarcoat it. It's like, yeah, well, the last one failed. Um, this is, uh, you know, in this moment, we think, or I think, you know, this is the best one. If you have a better idea, let me know and, we'd, you know, we'll look at it. Uh, but if not, okay, let's, you know, let's go and do this. Yeah. And and if this one fails, well, we'll find another one. We're not going to give up, and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, uh, you know, the the shortest path to success is not a straight line, right? In the startup world, it is a it's a zigzag sort of crooked line, and you know, it's sort of like even when you succeed, oftentimes you have to change and modify and evolve and pivot away into different things. Uh, so, so there's no, you know, that sort of part for the course in our business, right? So you kind of have to just deal with it on its own merit right. without complicating, you know, like I said, egos, perceptions, emotions, and so on as much as possible. And most companies, when they go through this sort of a business pivot, typically go through that in the early days of the company. And there are, of course, exceptions of companies who do it later stages as well, but predominantly in the early stages. 
And I asked this following question based on some of the insights and things that I've seen with my own portfolio and some of the investments that I've made. Do you typically, or would you recommend a founder or founders to have a good mix of generalists on their team as opposed to seasoned specialists in the early days, especially knowing that the chances of pivots in the early days are quite high and having somebody who can be a business generalist who kind of molds themselves very quickly when things change kind of allows you the flexibility of moving quickly as a team, as opposed to then convincing people who may or may not have that areas of expertise to actually make that pivot happen. Or do you just inherently believe that smart people can eventually make anything work? No, I mean, there is, uh, it's not related to smarts or IQ. I think it's really related to a personality type, right? In the yeah. sense that, uh, I mean, in, you know, in the Valley, there's a cliche, right? You want, in the early stages, you want commandos. And then as it scales up, you want the military types and yeah, then the generals, police, yeah. uh, policemen, right? And it's the same thing, right? So a, a commando is a generalist, versatile, can do a lot of stuff with very little support and structure and can establish a beachhead, right? And then you bring in the specialists who, who work in lockstep and with systems and infrastructure and process and logistics, you know, and then they expand, but but they help you scale, right? It's essential for that. And then, uh, you know, the the police types are, uh, people who help you maintain and make sure, you know, it doesn't break. And, you know, it's just appropriate for each stage. I mean, that's what a company, and not just the stage of the company, it's often the stage of the project, mm -hmm. right? Because like even at Gupshop, for example, right now, the infra has to be run like a police thing, right? Meaning you can't have outages and breakages and so on. So it, it's all optimized towards zero mistakes, Right. right, it's very rigid, very structured, process oriented, for a for a good reason. Uh, but then we have other projects which are at the other end of the spectrum. We are trying different things, and that's very entrepreneurial. And there's, you know, just figure it out and uh, get things in more quickly. Yeah, exactly. So I think, um, yeah, it depends on on stages. So certainly in the early days, you know, having the the versatile generalists commander types is uh, certainly very helpful and very much needed. Yeah, I know we're here towards the end of the hour and I wanted to ask you this question, which I typically ask all the guests who are on the podcast and I kind of give you a hint as to what this question could be. It's got to do with your own personal learnings and it's kind of got to do with some of the pieces of advice that you would perhaps give to your younger self. And looking back at the journey that you've had and the multiple roles that you played with you know, Gupshop with, um, you know, uh, Upwork and as, you know, in banking as well to a certain degree. What would you tell yourself at the outset of the, your career? What would you tell somebody who is bracing themselves for this long journey of banking and multiple uh, stints as an entrepreneur, being on a board, thinking of taking companies public, all of that journey that you've had? Like, what would you tell yourself in terms of bracing um, for the journey that was to be? Well, it's hard for me to tell my past self anything in the sense that if I hadn't made all those mistakes, I wouldn't have the lessons to be able to go back and tell. But for a new entrepreneur, you know, coming up, I can certainly, you know, just share uh, um, sort of some of the lessons that I've learned from my mistakes so that hopefully they don't repeat those, but they can make their own new mistakes and go through their learning processes, right? Which is, um, I mean, 
you know, I think it's, uh, I mean, we operate in a world of uncertainty and there's, uh, uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to have full knowledge, full insight, full conviction and so on, um, you know, and then coupled with external factors, it's a roller coaster ride and, and so on. So I think sort of your own, you know, for an entrepreneur, your just your own thought process, your own mental health, your own stability uh, is sort of essential for this thing to to scale and grow and succeed, right? So sort of manage, you know, don't worry about the things that you can't control and, you know, focus on, on, on what you can. And um, I think uh, really, you know, I think be your authentic self, you know, lead, sort of focus on doing the right thing, ignore all the other distractions. I think we covered uh, some of these things. I think also, you know, just spend some time thinking about either the big stuff or or sort of, you know, working backwards from the goal um, and, and, and things like that. Um, also, I, I try to, you know, read or listen to a lot of podcasts, right? I mean, here I'm recording one, but I listen to a lot as well because there's so much to learn from so many other people who've made their mistakes or they've discovered their insights that I'd love to, you know, short circuit if I can. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's really just stay humble and hungry and, you know, uh, keep learning, keep doing. And, you know, it's sooner or later. And sometimes it might take a lot longer than you expect, but, uh, you know, uh, but it, it it happens. I mean, that's got to keep the faith and keep the dream alive, right? Absolutely. Trust that things will work out in the end. And I don't think there's a better note to end the episode on. And I don't know if you noticed this, but we never spoke about Gapshap as such, or we never talked about Upwork as such. And that's very intentional, by the way. I do this on most of my episodes where I bring all the guests and I don't really get into just the day-to-day of their business and really talk about what they think about the market, there's the company going and all that. But I really try and explore the person behind the persona. And some of the things that kind of get them to make, you know, some of the decisions that they make, the frameworks that they have, the kind of people that they have interacted with, things that have shaped them as individuals. And I really love sitting across founders, especially because they have, they're like, this is like a biography. This is a biography in like 60 minutes where I'm able to like sit down and have a a, a good version of what their learnings have been and take away a, a great bit from that conversation. It's like an it's a mini MBA. It's like a case study in in some sense. And you've given me a lot to think about. You've given and shared some of your frameworks that I would love to, you know, take back from this. When I'm editing the episode, I'm going to listen to it for the second time and make some notes. And uh, I wanted to thank you for being here. I'm really grateful for your presence and the fact that you were able to share a lot of things with us very candidly. Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners also will benefit from it. And I would love to bring you back at a later stage uh, on the podcast again and talk about some of the other experiences and learnings that you've had. We wanted to get into the IPO journey, the things that you've seen being on a board and raising money and all of that, but we never got to do any of that this time. But we'll do a part two for sure. And we'll get to dive into all of those experiences that you have had on the other side of being an operator. But thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure hosting you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the discussion. Well, hopefully your listeners go make new mistakes, not the same ones. Uh, and, you know, yeah, absolutely. Would love to chat more later. Well, some of them write in, so I'll maybe uh, pass that along to you. Please do. Well, that unfortunately is the end of this episode, everyone. But I promise you, we will bring Birat back on for a second part 
where we will delve deeper into his experience and learnings as a founder scaling companies, including all of the experiences that he's had, hiring people, managing board, fundraising, taking companies public, and everything in between. There's a lot of advice that Birad was able to share from looking back at his own career, and I believe many founders can really benefit from some of the frameworks that he was able to share over the course of the last 60 minutes. Thank you once again, Birad, for being on the podcast and being extremely candid about your own journey as a founder. Well, if you're like me and you enjoyed this episode and all the other ones that we've brought you so far, please go ahead and rate and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps others discover the show, but more importantly, keeps you updated about each and every episode that we release here on the show. Well, stay tuned because we are releasing another fantastic episode with a founder who's building a company in the entertainment space. So make sure you tune back in again next week to see who we have here on the podcast. Until then, stay safe, everybody, and continue to keep hustling.